0: Welcome back, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a faith-indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is, again, your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service, and I'm so glad to have you with us today. I'm also glad to be joined by Gloria Purvis. Gloria Purvis is a well-known Catholic author and speaker and podcaster herself, but her interaction with Notre Dame this year has been as the inaugural pastoral fellow at Notre Dame's Office of Life and Human Dignity at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. I think that I got that right, Gloria. But
1: Yep, you did.
0: Yeah, great. Well, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me
0: it is an honor to speak with you and we like to go through people's early life first so could you tell us some about your childhood please
1: (laughs) yeah i'm a southerner born in charleston south carolina i was not catholic my family was not catholic and how i ended up getting exposed to the catholic faith was through education because Mm. my parents wanted to get the best education they could for their children and even though they weren't catholic they were like you know what the catholics are pretty good with education so (laughs) they sent me and my sisters a catholic school from first to 12th grade and i will say this my parents have always said i've been a bit of a a go my own way type Uh of person uh i've never been a I've never just followed along. I've always, my dad said, been just a natural contrarian. <laughs> like I just, he, you know, you got to give me some real reasons to do something okay, or okay. to buy into something. And that sort of factored into my becoming Catholic at age 12. Wow. Well, it's a long story, but I'll make it short. Basically, we had a food fight during lunch. <laughs> okay. At my Catholic school, but we were good kids, okay? We were really good kids. We were like, it is not fair for the janitorial staff to have to clean up behind us, so we went into the janitor's closet and got like mops and brooms and cleaned up the cafeteria lickety split you know just really great very clean but after like that fun food fight during lunch we had religion class with the principal of the school who just mm. so happened to be a, a catholic religious sister mm-hmm. and this was the first time that i encountered catholics doing public confessions Because sister, (laughs) sister quizzed each of us publicly. So you had to stand up and admit your guilt or not. And when (laughs) I was in public school, public school is me. When I was in Catholic school, whenever an adult entered the room, you had to do things like stand up and greet them by their name. Mm -hmm. And then you had to get their permission. Like they'd have to respond before you could sit down. And so whenever an adult was in a classroom, they called your name. You had to stand up and address them so she went student by student I remember she got to me, Gloria and I stood up yes Sister Carmelita did you participate in the food fight yes Sister Carmelita sit down you know (laughs) know? (laughs) I mean that's just the way it was so one by one we all had to admit our guilt or innocence you know right there in front of Everybody else who knew whether you were lying or not, whether you participate in a food fight or not. Sure. But long story short, sister was not happy. I'm being real mild here about it, but she was not happy. <laughs> right. So it just so happened that the school that I went to was a cathedral school in Charleston. It's no longer there. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. charter school now for music. Okay. But um, we walked across the parking lot and went to the crypt church because sister was like, this is unacceptable. And she basically had to go pray to Jesus not to kill us. I mean, she was so mad.
2: Yes. Good grief!
1: So we're in in that crypt church, and she's on her knees, and I just could see her from the back, like making fists in the air and her habits swishing around. So she's really working it out with Jesus. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you. And we were all terrified. <laughs> you know, we wanted to live, so we were like dead silent. Right. Right. And. It was at that moment in that silence that I had what I can only describe as a mystical experience huh. with the Eucharist. Because it was during, she was, it was doing adoration. adoration. She was on her knees oh, in sure. front of the monstrance and wow. working it out with Jesus. Yeah. And at that moment, I had a mystical experience that made me realize that what was in the monstrance was real and alive. And just, I mean, I still remember the sensation of being engulfed in flames, hmm. knowing I was on fire, but it didn't burn. But immediately knowing that that was real and alive, you know? Wow. And so sometime later she came back to my class and was like, all right, let me get all the Catholics together to prepare you for confirmation. I ran up to her and I was like, sister, sister, you know, breaking protocol, getting out of my seat, going to an adult when I was not called. <laughs> but went up there and I said, sister, I, I'm supposed to be a Catholic, I think. And you know what she said to me?
2: Hmm.
1: <laughs> She was like, nah, you need to go home and ask permission. You can't just run up in here and say, right. you're going to be <laughs> And I did just the opposite. I went home and informed my parents that I was becoming a Catholic. Okay. I was 12 years old. <laughs> and this is where the contrarian type of thing comes in. Yeah. Because I was convinced, you know, this, this intense experience changed me in a way that has changed, I think, really the trajectory of my life. For sure. Because my parents... You know, my dad was like, what is she talking about? My mom, in this non-Catholic family, my mom just said, oh, you're going to become a Catholic? You're going to be a Catholic. And I was like, yeah. She's like, okay, then you're going to Mass every Sunday, every mm-hmm. holy day of obligation. You are going to pray the rosary, and you're not eating meat on Fridays. Okay. <laughs> and that was the deal. So at 12 years old, I didn't go to Mass by myself. And yeah, that was that was my life.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, what an amazing story and just that zeal that you were on fire with that you knew that this was it. What was it like the rest of your childhood as you continued to deepen your faith in those interactions with your family?
1: I was from a multi faith family. Sure. My mom was Methodist, my grandma was Baptist, and my dad was NFL. So you didn't get that one, did <laughs> I you?
0: Did. I was like, <laughs> wait, is that a is that an acronym? Oh no, okay. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, that's football league, right? Yeah, that was where his Sunday was. What? Okay. Watching football. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: But but they were I would say my family was very accepting and promoting of my faith. And so, like, my Baptist grandmother taught me a lot of Catholic devotions that I didn't know, Catholic practices. Hmm. Like every time we drive past the Catholic Church, she'd say, you're supposed to make the sign of the cross. That's what you do now. You're a Catholic. She was just, she was the one that really encouraged me to pray to the rosary. She took a rosary, brought me into her bedroom and put it on, you know, she had one of those big Southern four poster beds Mm -hmm. and she put the rosary around one of the poster beds next to her Bible, you know, Baptist, good Baptist reading that Bible. Sure. And she's like, I want you to see, it's okay for you to pray to us. I'm putting this right here. And she was the reason that We got to go see Mother Teresa when she came to Charleston. Hmm. My grandmother was the reason. We got to see John Paul II when he came to Columbia, South Carolina. Wow. Just very much like if you're going to be this, you're going to be this. And, um, And also, you know, it had very big changes for my whole family because my mother was not cooking two meals on Friday. So everybody gave up meat. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> you know. It had really big changes. And then and the interesting thing is, my other sisters then converted to Catholicism. So my parents eventually were the only non Catholics in the house, along with my grandmother. Okay. And it really I mean, really, really changed so many things. But I have to show a lot of love and gratitude to my parents for their acceptance. And and by the way, it was not without sacrifice. Sure. My mother was a, very active in her Methodist church, right? Mm-hmm. She played the organ. She kept the books. She just arranged so many things. And so when I was missing on Sunday, everybody was like, well, where's Gloria? And my mother's like, Gloria's a Catholic now. She will mm. not be coming back. Wow. And then, you know, one by one, they were like, where are you other children? They're like, they're all Catholics now. They're not coming back. Huh. Never with a complaint. You know, never with. Gosh, you guys are embarrassing me.
2: Yeah. Anything
1: like that, never. It was. That's what they are now, and when I say that's where they are now, I mean legit. We went to. We went to mass every Sunday, even though everybody else went to different different churches. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And, and it changed also our our, our celebration of Christmas because Protestants don't go to church on Christmas if it isn't Sunday. Okay. So. Not only did we go to Mass, we went to Midnight Mass, so my parents had to be up waiting for us to come back for Midnight Mass. <laughs> yeah. And when they would wait for us, we were like, all right, let's open the gifts now. And we're like, okay. <laughs> so really, really the whole experience of faith in that whole household changed. Mm-hmm. But my parents were never bitter about it. Never.
0: Yeah, it sounds like really fertile ground and a strong foundation. And, and, and a really supportive one that allowed mm-hmm. you to flourish in your faith, which is, it is, is a real gift for sure. Mm-hmm. I've had the chance to visit Charleston, and there's just a lot of history and richness mm-hmm. there. How did Charleston and, and, and some of the local history and, and all that shape you as a young person?
1: Oh, so I will say this. I mean, even though legal segregation had long been outlawed, mm-hmm. I had a very segregated life experience. So okay. what I mean by that, where I went to Catholic school was a black Catholic school because the cathedral school on the peninsula is where the black Catholics were or black people who weren't Catholic sent their kids to Catholic school, was one of two. It okay. Cathedral School and the other one was Sacred Heart. So I went to the Cathedral School. My exposure to Catholicism was black people. My first grade teacher was the first religious sister I ever met and she was a black woman, hmm. Sister Mary of Mercy. Wow. So to me, seeing a, a, a religious an, a habit that was black, that was normative. I didn't hmm. know that that was something unique. Or unusual sure. and here's the interesting thing servant of god mary lang had come through charleston centuries before mm-hmm. i went to the cathedral school and it just so happened that when she said yes to god in baltimore and was you know founding the oblate sisters of providence their charism was to educate black children and wow. so my first grade teacher was an oblate sister of providence and so this woman who had passed through charleston from cuba centuries before and started the first religious community in the United States for black women impacted my life i just love how you know you see the connections of people's yeses to god how yeah. it has such a greater impact on the larger community so all these black children work being educated by Oblate Sisters of Providence who were some of the teachers in my school mm-hmm. because of Servant of God, Mary Lange, yes. And the fact that she'd come through Charleston centuries before, just to me, just seemed like only a story God could write.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And because of that, I was able to see his... Uh, and, and, and I still feel the love of, of Sister Mary of Mercy, may God, you know, may her soul rest in peace mm-hmm. for just being there to educate me and to really, she tried to instill in children a love of virtue and that that also that our teachers love us and want to educate us. So that was my first to eighth grade experience was this black Catholic school, black religious, black priest, hmm. Father Figaro, Father Egbert J. Figaro, who also, when I got married, was a priest that celebrated my wedding.
2: Uh-huh. And
1: everybody that was Catholic, that was black, that went to that school also went to the black Catholic church, which was St. Patrick's, which is where I went to church. So I, I, my experience of the faith was very much, although people would say it's segregated, it was not a negative segregation. This was a a loving community of Black people. And I also think that gave my parents some um, comfort, knowing that I was Catholic and knowing that I'd have a faith community that where I'd be safe. Uh-huh, I mean, there's no uh-huh. other way to say it. I mean, sure. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. Not every place is going to be safe. It's a beautiful city to visit. Don't get me wrong and all that stuff. But some terrible things take a long time to die.
0: Yeah, a lot of scars.
1: I mean, think about think about what happened with Dylan Roof, mm-hmm. who came and murdered nine people during a prayer service at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. During mm-hmm. the trial, it came out in his book he'd surveyed other black churches and St. Patrick's was one of them. Wow so yeah it was the recognizing that you know are we safe anywhere that yeah. we actually could have been in the crosshairs of a a racist crazed murderer
2: mm-hmm.
1: just because we are black
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know just the reality that's just a reality that we that we live with mm-hmm. and i remember many of us were on facebook you know messaging each other in our some of our on um, facebook groups just saying gosh are we safe anywhere you know yeah. and that feeling of vulnerability yeah that so many of us Had especially learning that our parish, you know, was a consideration for a mass shooting. Right. But I have to say this. I had a great childhood. I loved Charleston. I loved my experience. I didn't, I did have some exposure later on to other Catholics who were white, you know, and I mean, I knew they existed, but it just, it didn't factor (laughs) into my experience of the faith. Sure. It really, it just didn't. Yeah. My whole faith community was... Black and including Mm -hmm. the priest for the parish, Father Figaro, Mm -hmm. black. So, yeah, I think I probably had an an unusual experience there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You might hear a lot of folks from the black community might say, I went to what seemed like a a mostly white parish or things like that, but it was Mm -hmm. this unique environment that, you know, again, as you said, allowed you to feel safe and and flourish in your faith. So, Mm -hmm. a blessing in that way. Mm -hmm. As you decided on further education and your career path, what were some of the factors in, in making those decisions?
1: Yeah, so I ended up going to Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Uh huh. And part of it was I was just looking across the country at where I might go to school. And um, I knew someone that went to Cornell. And when he came back, he came by my house. And he says, Gloria, and he didn't go to my high school, but he knew me. He says, you're bright, you're this. He says, I really want to encourage you to apply to Cornell. Mm-hmm. And I did. And the funny thing about it was... <laughs> My um, high school guidance counselor really tried to discourage. Well, she was angry that I didn't go to her to have her write my recommendation. Okay. But again, of me, my being a contrarian, right. I was I was looking at the process they had later. I was like, why am I going to talk to this woman? She's never spoken to me. Mm. I was like, and in fact, when I ran for senior class president and I won, she told me, "Well, the the the, the outcome is too close, so we need to have another." election hmm. and I won that one and according to the rules it didn't matter if I won by one vote or a hundred, that meant I won. But mm-hmm. she says, No, no, still too close and I could see what was going on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I just happened to mention to another student in my home room and by the way I went to the one Catholic high school is predominantly white I was in honors classes mm-hmm. and I was like one of three girls in black students, all girls in these honors classes. But anyway, okay. our homerooms were just mixed up. Didn't matter if you were in honors, a one, a two is what they call it. Our homerooms are just a bunch of kids from different levels. And I was talking to one of the, um, these white girls, uh, Tony actually is her name. And I was just telling her, you know, it's so peculiar. I can't believe I have to go through a third thing, but we have to have the third election. You know, I've won the other two and it's not even in the rules. And I just remember looking at me, she says, Oh, okay she said "Uh uh-huh so she went and rallied all like the rebels
0: and whatnot rebel kids (laughs) your fellow contrarians (laughs) yeah got all the
1: contrarians and 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 just to stick it to the man sort of thing and so i won overwhelmingly there was no way that the guidance counselor could try to you know do anything else it was very clear and other people other students like the outgoing student body president was present for the counting so she couldn't now again do anything but it was just those kinds of you know, ridiculous things that I experienced. And I remember once I did become senior class president, you know, we had our baccalaureate and we were as juniors as as rising seniors. We were getting our class ring. And so the representative who would sell the rings came to the school and as class president, it you know, rising senior class president. It was my role to introduce him to all the juniors and da in da, 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 a big assembly we had for juniors.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And when he saw me step up and give this, an, he was appalled, hmm. and he made it clear to the to the guidance counselor, like, "What is she doing?" Da da da. And instead of the guidance counselor defending me, like, "What you know, what's your problem?" She said, "Yeah, these kids are strange these days."
0: Hmm.
1: And I heard that, yeah. and I saw it, yeah, in a Catholic high school,
0: right. Yeah, that's those are those are hard stories to hear, but I think Im- important ones to reflect on uh, what that experience was like for you and yet to see you persevere through that adversity and and mm-hmm. continue to find success. What was it like going from a Catholic environment to Cornell and how did you keep touch with your faith during those years in college?
1: So, it was cold, which was <laughs> it was a big huge climate change. I was a you know, I grew up on the beach. Right. Yeah. You know. So nice. to go to Ithaca and that first snow, I was like, "What?" I just thought, "Oh no, there's no way we're going to class." And my roommate was from the Bronx, and I remember looking at me like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "Well, you see all that snow?" I was like, "You know, we're, I'm just gonna study here." She's like, "If you don't get your little Carolina, <laughs> you know, self dressed and out that door, of course we still have school." And I was like, "What?" Yeah, this is so. Norm. Yeah, that was a big. Yeah, that was the norm. But I was like, "What?" And how did I not know this? You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> it just never really dawned on me. And I'd gone up to Cornell to visit, but it was in the spring, right? And and there was no snow at this point. Um. Anyway, it just—I don't know what I was thinking, but I quickly adapted. And I have to. Oh gosh, I hate to say this because it sounds so not right. The the on campus ministry was not good.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh. I it's a wonder I maintained the faith the way mm. it was just we needed a better on campus ministry and I that's all I will say cuz I want to remain charitable.
0: Sure, sure.
1: <laughs> but I still remained Catholic. It just that was that, you know, I've never repudiated the faith. That was never I don't know, it was just never a thing for me. Mm-hmm. And then in the in the black community there with so many kids from even though from New York, you know, had Caribbean roots like from Trinidad or whatnot. A lot of Trinidadians are Catholic. Yeah. So there was a, a, also a black Catholic community there. Great. And also just a black Christian community that was strong there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Being a believer was not. Odd, so to mm. speak. It wasn't mm-hmm. anything like it would be more odd if you were in the black community there. It'd have been more odd if you started saying you didn't believe in God. People be like, "What's wrong with you?"
2: Okay, you know what I mean. It wasn't,
1: you know. While while again, of course, you had that same kind of party stuff where people were doing things you shouldn't be doing, mm-hmm. but at no at no step along the way where people like harassing christians for believing and for reading the bible and you know singing gospel music and and proclaiming a belief in god it just that was that was normative you know Mm -hmm. nobody's gonna think something's wrong with you for that
2: you know
0: yeah yeah it's interesting these little these these stories uh, have this hint of adversity and and headwinds and yet there's these little elements of grace in each one that seem Hmm. to keep you along and seem to keep you connected so that's that's nice to hear because I think, I think a lot of people in today's society who do want to remain committed to their Catholic and Christian faith do feel a lot of headwinds and, and, mm-hmm. and we're looking for these signs of grace. So thanks for, for sharing those. As it related to your education, what did you decide to study and how did that lead to your early career?
1: Yeah, uh, what I studied and what my career and two completely unrelated things. That's <laughs> okay, So I studied psychology and biology, mm-hmm. sociology, those kinds of things. Sure. But I ended up working in mortgages, real estate okay. finance. And I really feel like Cornell gave you the oomph. The to to do whatever you wanted to do. Honestly, Mm -hmm. it was just very academically rigorous. And I think if you, if you graduate from there, to me, you have a lot of confidence in being able to do anything. Sure. And so I ended up in um, working in mortgage finance and had my career in that and ended up doing a lot of financial risk management, Mm -hmm. uh, counterparty risk, credit risk, derivative you know, writing policies and helping people understand things and instituting practices, good risk management practices. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that kind of stuff.
0: And when you were there, I know the areas of mortgage finance, real estate. You know, race can be a topic there, and and oh, esp- yeah. unfortunately, our history in the in the United States, especially, is not always positive in that way. Did you? Mm -hmm. See any remnants of that or or were you? Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. Oh,
1: gosh. Let me tell you, I worked um, in the beginning, I worked in small mortgage companies, and it was appalling the things that I saw Mm. being done even then. And this was not that long ago. Yeah. I would see black people with excellent credit be given rates two and three percentage points higher than the similarly situated white people Mm -hmm. because i would sometimes have to drop the loan documents yeah and i'd have to look through the files to make sure all the underwriting conditions were met and inevitably i'd see the credit scores i'd see the bank accounts and i'm like you know why is the rate two points higher Mm -hmm. and it was just a matter of People taking advantage of it. Yeah, I could make more money off these people that don't know any better.
2: Hmm.
1: Even though white people didn't necessarily know any better either. Yeah. They just offered them better rates. And once I almost lost my job because it was a single mom in Baltimore with three kids buying a house. Her credit score was like 750. I mean, a high credit score. Yeah, yeah. And they had this outrageous rate for her. So I just looked up the rates of the day (laughs) and I just promptly adjusted everything in her credit (laughs) on her loan documents and sent it off to the closing table and the loan officer wanted to like kill me and I was like well why'd you offer her that much that ridiculous rate I said, why would you do that? And that sort of changed the whole conversation. And then it turned out that the same loan officer who was unethical with this woman was also unethical with the company itself. And he'd stolen all this money wow. and fled to Ireland.
0: Hmm. My goodness.
1: I mean, it was kind of crazy. I've told you, I've had some, some nutsy experiences <laughs> out there in my in, in my career. So I've just seen some nutsy things. Yeah. Um, I've also seen, I just remember... They called this one black man back in who was a borrower and they were telling him that he had to re-sign his loan documents because it was a mistake. Like what they did is they gave him a rate, but they wanted him to get a higher rate Uh because they could make more money, they realized. And so they conned this man into signing a new note. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how the senior vice president of this particular mortgage company was so rude to him hmm. when he when had come in. He was just an honest, hardworking person. And you know what? God don't like ugly because she was dead the next weekend. She, dro- hmm. she dropped dead the next weekend. Wow. And I've always thought about that. And I've always thought about and I was like, because I kept thinking to myself, why was I allowed to see how she talked to this man? Because mm-hmm. I thought to myself, why was it? Lord, why did you allow me to see that? And then the very next weekend she just she just dropped dead. Hmm. And I've always taken that to mean you never know when your last minute is going to be. And so we need to be mindful of how we treat people and what things what motivates us to do things and always try to do things ethically and properly and not let greed and love of money make you do unethical things and also treat people so despicably. Mm-hmm. So
0: Yeah, there's there's that temptation to get overly fixated on those things, overly short sighted, and not thinking about the eternal eternal side of things, and uh, so that's a good reminder Mm -hmm. for all of us.
1: And to be deceptive to a person, I mean, there was some active deception. That man did not have to sign anything, and they made it seem like he was obligated to sign these documents. It was was just pathetic.
0: Well, and anybody who's ever closed on a home or something, you go in there, and you just, you keep signing and they, they keep explaining the gist of what this is, but yeah. you're certainly at the mercy of those who are more experts in this matter and you need yeah. advocates in, in well, that. Well, you
1: know what? It's funny you should say that because when I bought my first home, that's precisely, so the the title company owed me several thousand dollars in, in money mm-hmm. when I went to closing And they told me, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have the money right now. We'll send it to you. And I was like, I made a dramatic, like you clicked my pen and I put it down and I was like, I'm not signing not one more piece of paper if you don't get my money in here.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And they were shocked because they had (laughs) let the, they'd written this huge check to the seller of the property and let them leave. And my real estate agent, I think, was trying not to have a heart attack as she was sitting next to me, but I was just like, and I purposely and this is a tip for everybody listening to this podcast, yeah, only sign the note and the deed of trust last okay, don't sign because that's what they that's need, the big, yeah, you know that's the thing that you know sign those things last, but like if, if your settlement statement ain't right, and they're asking for more money. You know, you know all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go through with it. Believe me, they want to close more than you do.
2: <laughs> and they have
1: the ability to fix those documents at that time. Yeah. And so somehow my money magically appeared. You know, they were able to give me this check. Yeah. And then I went ahead and signed the rest of the documents, making sure to sign the note and the deed of trust last.
0: Yeah, that's a good tip.
1: Only because I knew the business. right?
0: You know? Yeah, exactly. exactly. And I was like, who
1: do these people think they're pulling one over on?
0: <laughs> I was like, y'all Not are going to find out today. You're going to find out today. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned marriage. How did the decision to marry come about and factor into your vocation?
1: I I just always, in the back of my mind, thought I would get married. I Mm -hmm. always wanted to be married. But it wasn't like some people say, do you go to college to seek your MRS degree? I was not. I mean, that was so far, you know, in the past type of thing. But I met my husband in college and he proposed, which was a total shocker. And I said, (laughs) yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's how, it fact, I mean, met a guy, met a a guy, met a girl, (laughs) and he didn't run away. (laughs) And and I have to say, you know, as a young person in college and even after college, you know, I like to discuss ideas and stuff. And my family's like, you know, they met him and I didn't know until I got married that they all were like, she going to run this man off. (laughs)
2: Because
1: I like to discuss ideas. And I guess we were having a philosophical disagreement. And my parents and my sisters were all like, oh, Lord, here she goes. Mm -hmm. And I guess we were having this really heated discussion for hours. And my whole family was like, that's it. He's out of here. He's done. (laughs) And then my sister said, you heard me say I think you have a point. And they were like, what? This is the one for her. This is the one for her. This is the one for her. You know? so, yeah. And I didn't find this out until my wedding day. <laughs> this was, Their assessment was like, he's out of here. She's, go, she's wearing this man out. And then when I was like, you know, I think you have a point. They were like, oh yeah, he's the one.
0: He's yeah. the one. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny those when you're in the midst of a relationship like that, you don't always see those things. But the loved ones around you, who know you or know both people <laughs> well, they they can uh, pick up on some things. So
1: yes, yeah, yeah. There's, I laugh about it now. <laughs> I think God, God knew exactly the type of man that I needed. He's Catholic too. Mm-hmm. Um, he was cradle Catholic, and also he has his own mind. You know. Yeah we were able to discuss ideas and respect that we had different points of view but also able to express those disagreements cordially I guess and Mm -hmm. respect it and also having them you know you have to have some reasons for what you believe you know and what you're saying what's your evidence why do you believe it what's your rationale blah 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 not as a combative sort of thing but to help the other person also understand where you're coming from. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Well yeah and there's a richness there I think In the best sense, uh, that's what a university is supposed to be, is a place where you can exchange ideas. And it's not that everybody comes out with the same ideas or opinions, but we're better for the fact that we've had the conversations and and can Mm -hmm. respect each other, as you said, for being able to formulate something and stand by it. So I'm glad that that's been your experience in marriage. How did you get into the Catholic world and ministry world, all those things?
1: All accidental, none of it planned. I mean, I, I had a career, I was doing other stuff. Sure. And I remember going to somehow, I was at a natural hair care salon. And when I mean natural hair care salon, it's a hair care salon for black women who don't, who keep their hair in a natural style, wouldn't do anything to permanently alter our natural hair. Okay. So I was in a natural hair care salon with this actually a woman I had on my podcast, Pamela Farrell, who's a pioneer in natural hair care. Anyway, I was in her salon. She was either braiding or twisting my hair, and I was reading a magazine. It was either Essence or Ebony or something, and it was listing all all these mega churches, and it listed Saint Augustine Catholic Church in Washington D.C. And I was like, "What?" Mm-hmm. And I was reading about it, and I was like, "I'm going to Mass there this coming Sunday." And so my husband and I went to Saint Augustine's in D.C. and just fell in love with the with the church, with the community, and we discovered that they didn't have a pro-life, social, like they didn't have a social justice ministry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we were like, where's, you know, and we were like, oh, this is our chance. We can because we'd been to other parishes that had a pro-life ministry and a social justice ministry. And it seemed odd to us that these were separated.
0: Okay, sure. And
1: so we're like, okay, we'll start this at the parish, but we're just going to call it the social justice ministry because pro-life is a social justice issue. Yeah, it's
0: wrapped up in that. Right.
1: So... And we didn't know that that was unique. <laughs> and so we were committed to helping to grow this ministry as well as the young adult ministry because we were young adults. And that's really how we became or I became more active in it, looking at the Like oh you know let's partner with the Gabriel Project to make sure we have you know resources for uh, mothers who are pregnant need resources so Mm -hmm. we started that at the church it was the only one like in that part of D.C. We partnered with a maternity home which I'm now a board member of the Northwest Pregnancy Center and maternity Mm -hmm. home in D.C. and then we started trying to work with the diocese pro life office and with the social justice office and really trying to plug in our parish and the young adults to the life of the church. And then because of that ministry and, and we grew the young adult ministry from like five people to like 150, yeah. 200 people, something yeah, like that's that. That's great. But what in doing so we encountered so many young people with questions about well, why does the church teach that? Mm. You know, well, what, what, what is what does that mean? And blah, blah, blah. And so we were like, Okay, we'll we'll be able to talk about that. But I also had a a mystical experience, another one. This Mm -hmm. is how the Lord works, I guess, just to knock me upside the head. (laughs) Uh, I had another mystical experience at Mass, actually at St. Augustine Church. And it was when we were saying the creed, you know, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord giver of life. And at that moment, I just heard a voice say, are you lying? Are you blaspheming? How can you say you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, and you do nothing to protect my gift of life. Mm. And all this happened in like a split second. Yeah. And you had just, you know, I was filled with woe. I mean, I was like, fell to my knees actually during the the Holy Mass. And I'd come, I just had that moment of realizing, I, I can't describe it, just an immediate knowing that what we say at the Holy Mass has consequences, has meaning. Yeah. That... God himself and the entire celestial court is present at the mass and we are, when we say these things, they have consequences. We are going to die. We are going to have to account for what we we say we believe and how do we comport ourselves to that? Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. the Lord in his mercy sort of gave me like a mini, 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 mini chastisement. You don't want one, believe me.
0: <laughs> Chastised a little, right? <laughs> yeah, but ever so, ever so small.
1: But but it's still like you, again, had a really big impact on my life because, you know, I believe what the church taught. I mean, I saw myself as a f- good, firm in the faith. Sure. And, you know, that little mirror, he just gave me a glimpse at myself not so much, you know, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, you, yeah. So I was like a comfortable in the pew Catholic, but that really set me on fire for, well, what is it, you know, why, what to get more deep about why the church says what she says about certain things. And that, I think the Lord also does things that it, it just is perfect timing because it was at the same time that we were encountering so many young people in this young adult ministry that didn't, believe what the church taught in fact had a lot of arguments for why the church was wrong but it was we discovered that you know what but you actually don't know what the church teaches yeah and so your your arguments why she's wrong don't even actually engage her the church's rationale so that led to a lot of um having to put together things to try to explain church teaching to young people and having i remember just (laughs) <laughs> Some of the things that we did were so wild. We had a Eucharistic Congress here in D.C. And afterwards, you know, we talked all the young adults into coming. So I think it was like 30 of us. And we went to this really nice restaurant after and they put all these tables together. We had a like a screaming match among the young adults in this restaurant over artificial contraception mm. over women's ordination sure. over priests not being able to marry and the entire restaurant was hanging on every word we said wow. we didn't even realize it until the waiter came up and said well the chef in the back is saying blah, blah, blah. <laughs> 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 and it must have been a sight to, to the people in this restaurant because we were the church meaning we were young people and we were of every race you could, you know Asian, yeah. black Hispanic, white And we were it was clear that we had very close bonds, but it was also very clear that we were like passionate about giving our reasons as to why we agree with the church or not. And I don't think anybody had ever you just didn't see that kind of stuff done in public, especially not in this sort of really nice restaurant (laughs) that we were in. And then, you know, being loud. I mean, it was just (laughs) quite a thing. But. the the flip side of it is that everybody got to hear why the church teaches what she teaches on each and every one of those issues. Hmm. So it was, and then also to see us all get happy and walk out together must've really blown everybody's mind. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. That's fascinating. So was it a leap of faith, so to speak, for you to leave your career and embark on these more church facing apostolates?
1: No, because, you know, honestly, while I was in corporate America, I was having the opportunity to evangelize on the job. It was so peculiar. People Mm. would come up to me and say just crazy stuff about the Catholic Church. And I was like, Lord, you're trying to get me fired. (laughs) And I was like, you know, and I talked to God a lot, even, you know, then I talked a lot and I was letting him know, you know, I got a mortgage. So if I get fired, you paying it. Right. Um, (laughs) And so I would have the opportunity to engage in these kinds of things at work. And also, I felt comfortable bringing my whole self to work as a part of, you know, diversity and inclusion were big things back then,
2: mm-hmm, even.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, people bringing them whole se- their whole selves to work. So I, you know, if somebody's going to say something that's patently false about the Catholic Church, of course, they never thought me, the black woman, was a Catholic, right? And so people say these things, and I was like, actually, that's not what we believe. This is what we believe. And they're like, you're Catholic. I was like, uh huh. Wow. Or they would say stuff like, I remember I was in a meeting. And the person facilitating the meeting, they were talking about if the Pope dies, what happens to the church. Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, they believe that the the, the Pope is perfect and without sin and, you know, he can do no wrong. And I said, I think you're confusing impeccability with infallibility. (laughs) And I explained that and every, you know, he just turned bright red because... In this room of managers, I was the only black woman and clearly the only Catholic that was willing to say something. And I was like, well, there goes my career. Jesus, thank you. But I just kept getting promoted and promoted. More money, more money. It was so it was funny. So when the opportunity came for me to leave corporate America, I took it. Mm. Even though they came back to me and offered me an insane bonus, like a six figure bonus. I was already making six figures at the time. And like you'd have this, you know, high six figure bonus, blah, blah, blah. And I just saw it as a temptation from the devil. Yeah. Because I felt like I was getting a parachute out of a burning building. Because at this point in my career, I was unable, and I was talking to God about it a lot. I felt that going to work and being in that kind of environment was more of a penance. And I had to say to God that my heart is not full of enough love for you to bear this cross appropriately. Hmm. And that was a hard realization because, I mean, I I would go in and pray, you know, at work because it was so toxic. I would bless rooms where we would have meetings and things like that. Uh, Yeah, it was the higher up I went in corporate America, the more the more I saw how the desire for money made people do the most unethical things mm-hmm. cr- and also cruel things to their coworkers. And and I was like, this is terrible. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't do it. I never would do it. it even when people try to do dirty things against me, I was like, I just, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going, I'm always going to make this about the work and never about trying to trip anybody up or mm-hmm. lie about them or mm-hmm. set them. I just was like, that. no. And, I, and because I was like that, even their dirty traps never worked. But um, it became a point where I was like, Lord, I, I can't. Yeah. And so he he created a way for me to exit gracefully with a lot of money. <laughs> you mm-hmm. <know>? yeah. <laughs> and my husband was more, he was like, you don't have to work. You don't want to It'll be fine. Mm. And um, I left and then got pregnant. Hmm. through after a visit to Lourdes. That's a long story. God has been very generous with me. Mm-hmm. So got pregnant um, after a trip to Lourdes because I was doctors had told me that I was had unexplained infertility. Okay. So I, I just was so happy after I left and then ended up pregnant, much to the surprise of the doctors, and ended up being a stay-at-home mommy. And during that time, I was still continuing ministry that I'd already done had already been doing. Yeah. Which had been going around to churches in the diocese to talk about what we believe as Catholics um, about the issues of abortion and artificial contraception and the dignity of women. And, you know, I have to tell you, it wasn't that, that I was, I was not like met with open arms. Sure. I had a lot of very Hostile encounters in Catholic churches <laughs> just from going to talk about church teaching. Yeah. One time I had to call my husband on my cell phone. I was like, keep the car running because I might have to <laughs> run mean, get away. out of this joint because it was people were screaming on me. I'm serious.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was a good preparation for the kind of stuff I do now. Really. <laughs>
0: Well, I do want to touch on motherhood just briefly. Yeah, You mentioned how supportive your parents were of your budding faith as a child. How did that change for you? Or what was that experience like for you on the flip side of that, of having a child and helping a child grow in faith?
1: Oh, my gosh. I think, you know, it was, oh gosh, I just remember being pregnant and the desire, the the waiting, right, for this child to... Make her introduction to the world. We, we waited to find out whether it was boy or girl. My mother was not happy about that because she wanted to buy the right <laughs> color clothes. Yeah. She's like, you know, my day we had to wait to know. Right. You know, you have all this stuff. I was like, mom, it's the last surprise, you know, last yeah. kind of thing you can be surprised about.
0: I always said it gave me something to do that day because otherwise I was pretty much useless. <laughs> well,
1: you know, well, okay. that That's a whole funny thing because my husband was there with me. I, oh gosh, my whole birth story was funny because I was afraid of medicine and mm. epidurals and so I wanted to have a natural birth because I was very afraid of what all the drugs might do to the child sure, sure. during delivery so yeah anyhow so my <laughs> my husband was there with me and we had a doula and yeah I think he was worn out he was working
0: he was working too yeah okay <laughs> had a long labor
1: and some complications mm. and and whatnot but the child is fine she's oh, great
0: thanks be to God thanks be to yeah. God
1: yes but just that real longing and that desire to see her. And then also meditating on the incomprehensible love of God. Because I tell you, after I had that baby, I was like, ain't no way I would let her give up her life for these sorry people, (laughs) another proof that I am not God, don't (laughs) think like God. And so I started to really meditate a lot on the love of the Father for us, that he would give up his only son for us and that oh. Jesus is willing to. So it's just, it was a lot of meditation and a lot of real gratefulness. I still am in awe that the Lord gave this beautiful child to us. Mm. My husband and I still are in awe. We look at her and we're like, God is so good. Mm. Also in that he will help us where we are falling down and where we're weak. And I asked a blessed Virgin Mary, To step in when I'm not being the the mother I should be, when I'm falling down on the job. Yeah, we we ask St. Joseph and the Blessed Virgin Mary to really step in for us, Mm -hmm. to help us. I mean, because we realize we're flawed and broken human beings, but we want the Lord to really help us. And to be able to help form her and to how to question the world, some of the things that are put in front of her. Because we understand while we may educate our children a certain way, they still have to swim in the, the, the societal pool, if you will. Yeah. So really trying to help a child understand the world. And I live in a metropolitan area. I live in D.C. Mm-hmm. So... There are a lot of things that are just publicly on buses, right? In stores and things that make children ask questions. And yeah, tricky. And so yeah, so having to talk with her about same-sex marriage, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. earlier than I wanted to, just because of being exposed to things on the playground or you know stuff like that. And yeah. and uh, how do you talk about that with the child in a way that maintains their innocence, that's age-appropriate? and it also reinforces you know what we have already been teaching her about the faith mm-hmm. and also to do so in a way that doesn't create hatred or contempt for other people yeah so yeah
0: yeah i think that's part of the the modern challenge of parenthood and and doing so in the context of faith is as you've said trying to share church teaching in a way but in in to make sure that our children grow as charitable people and and yeah. can interact with the world but you know be in the world but not of the world those kinds right. of things that's that's part of it
1: i just the idea that we are in this pristine environment where everybody thinks like we do is a myth sure so and we need to recognize that
0: and and it's always been uh, it's never been a pristine environment i mean it's a right. fallen world and we each have mm-hmm. the challenges of our time to to grapple with and there have been if you read you know the history of the church and the saints and the martyrs i mean there've been there've been tough times in the past and yet the mm-hmm. you know the faith has endured i do want to get to your time at notre dame because i think that's interesting oh yeah what brought you to notre dame and what has your experience been like
1: so i was a part of a panel like early on after George Floyd's murder, mm-hmm. I was a part of a panel to talk about that issue. And it and it was great. It was a great panel. Yeah. And then later on I was approached about maybe giving a talk with McGrath or something like that. Uh-huh. And then later on they were like, Hey, we'd like to make you an inaugural pastoral fellow in the Office of Life and Dignity, McGrath Institute, help us to develop curriculum on this issue of the sin of racism mm-hmm. as I'd been talking about it before. And it's been a wonderful experience. I've been to the campus twice now to give talks to the community, meet Mm -hmm. the community, working with McGrath to further develop the curriculum that we're going to roll out as a webinar. Mm-hmm. And it's been a wonderful experience. Let's just say that. Um, to be able to have these conversations with other people in various departments on campus has been great. To be able to draw from the, the intellectual gifts of the university has been wonderful. And also, it, y'all let me know I'm not crazy. <laughs> you know, I'm not crazy and I'm not wrong and way off or anything like that. Yeah. So that has been very helpful because... One of the things for me, being openly pro-life, people, I realize, had understood that in a different way than I do. Mm -hmm. Like, I understood that being pro-life from the perspective of the church, not from the perspective of a political party. Right, right. And so I had a much, in my opinion, I think... There's a very, um, I guess, I think there's an anemic understanding of human dignity yeah. in our culture. And one that has been, unfortunately, very much shaped by whatever your political party is, even among Catholics, rather than being shaped by the gospel. I'm looking closely at the teaching of the church. And so when it came to matters of racism, people have been unable to tie concrete acts that they see in the public to the sin of racism. Mm-hmm we have been so conditioned socially conditioned that we i think have been have lost our ability to discern racist acts as racist acts hmm. and also from not knowing much history of slavery and the the great evil that that is i think mm-hmm. people say that word so lightly and haven't really Contended with how that poisoned so much yeah. of American society, and that we still are dealing with the legacy of that great evil mm-hmm. and how it's impacted even within the church. I mean, the doors of the church were not a shield against the sin of racism. Right. I mean, to find out that you had black people being denied. Like they could not come up and receive the Eucharist until every white person in the parishes received the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And if they ran out, oh, well, too bad. Finding out that black people could not participate in days of recollection in parishes because of segregation. Just all these kinds of things. Finding out the how black people, you know, once they were, slavery ended, how the church pretty much ignored, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how mm-hmm. the bishops pretty much ignored black people. And it, it fell on people like laymen, like Daniel Rudd. And. Uh, Wyatt Turner and Venerable Augustus Tolton to evangelize the Black community. Yeah. So I, I'm seeing so much that needs to be done in the American Church in these discussions to help people realize that the sin of racism is a is a grave evil, mm. and the Catholic Church talks about it not because we're trying to be hip or anything like that we talk about it because it's a grave sin and people can go to hell for it Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay yeah
1: and that is what motivates us yeah okay we realize how it rends the bonds of the human family and that we as people of faith have the i mean if we say we love god i mean i feel like how how do we how better to love him than to 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 actually try to do what he wants for the human family Mm -hmm. and that's to try to Help us understand we are have one common ancestor in God and we have one human family and we want the flourishing of this entire human family. And to realize where the sin of racism was intentionally working against the flourishing of some members of our human family. Mm-hmm. So to to try to have those kind of discussions, people were shocked that this pro-life woman who was about women's dignity and all this stuff and you know, Life of the Unborn actually had something to say about racism, police brutality, the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery really ruffled a lot of feathers. And people saw it as incongruous with mm. being pro-life. And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, it's you, you You have to have a better understanding of what the church teaches about the dignity of a human person. So,
0: yeah, that intrind- intrinsic dignity is certainly in the womb and then extends through the whole of life. And yeah, yeah I, I'm so glad that you're part of this conversation where you are bringing faith to bear because I think mm-hmm. nationally, internationally, some of these very difficult situations, I mean, people have really had to grapple with with this and you know, where racism still exists in our society. But sometimes I read articles or I hear conversations and it's like, oh, it falls a little bit short because that foundation of faith is not there and people are trying to grapple with it you know, more from a secular or humanist perspective. Yeah. And yet there's the, the depth and truth of our faith really is that, that key that unlocks a lot of this for us. And so I'm, I'm so glad that you can uh, incorporate that in, in, what, you're, in yeah. what you're sharing with us.
1: And I hope it gives people the courage to be involved, even in these secular movements, understanding our faith as the, as the root for what we do. Yeah. And so that even if we're involved in secular movements, we can still set boundaries that don't violate our faith, right? Mm-hmm, While mm-hmm. still being very much involved in racial justice, just like we're involved in, you know, movements to preserve life at the end of life, to preserve life at the beginning of life, sure. you know, religious liberty, all these things. But I found that people have used, to me, spurious reasoning to for why they're not involved in racial justice. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a Marxist organization. Oh, that's this. And I was like, how are you gonna face God Your judgment? <laughs> And you could say, you know, he's like, well, why didn't you do this? You're going to tell him, oh, well, the Marxists were there. That's why I couldn't yeah. you, couldn't follow you. <laughs> I'm like, y'all need to get it together. You know, this is like ridiculous. Either we have something to say and we can bring something to bear in these movements for justice and justice rightly understood as Catholics. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or we're just pandering to the favor of our political parties, Mm -hmm. or political or really just earthly power, seeking temporal power at the expense of justice.
0: Yeah, I think it's related to that point of how you said you were kind of a comfortable Catholic in, in your faith. And sometimes we just get comfortable sort of in our place in society, not to not ruffle too many feathers. But sometimes our faith really convicts us to say we need to, you know, we only have so much time in this life and we need to be that leaven in the world and that that can be scary and it can mean it can have consequences for you but i think oh yeah you've shown that it uh, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> it did you know that personally but mm-hmm. you know that that you've stayed committed to that holding that tension of this is all of what our faith demands of us
1: mhm and I will say this just for your listeners to know yeah I paid the price I mean the circles that I used to be welcome in, that people sort of look at me strangely now mm-hmm. and that's okay because I, I say that I want to live my life in allegiance to Jesus Christ and I, I have to remember that you know what I mean I can't I can't abandon him for the favor and friendship of people who want me to abandon him
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: to have their friendship and their favor and I just can't do that I won't do that yeah and, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's cost me dearly.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. There are aspects of the lives of the saints and holiness where you, you think about the situations that were happening in their life and sometimes, you know, answering those really difficult challenges and, and, and feeling God's call, you know, no matter what the cost. So I do want to turn to holiness then. Who have been some of the models of holiness for you, either, you know, in the canon of saints or just in your life?
1: Okay. St. Teresa of Avila, love her. Mm-hmm. I remember reading her books many years ago and they fried my wig, as they say. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I just remember one part where she sees her place in hell and I was like, what? Yeah. I was like, if this woman saw her place in hell, what hope we got? You know? Yeah. And I was like, oh Lord. you know. <laughs> and also I remember reading one of her books and she said, prayer and comfortable living don't you know, go together. Mm-hmm. And I threw the book across the room because I was like, I like comfortable <laughs> living.
2: <laughs>
1: but she's been really, I love her. I love, love, love St. Teresa of Avila. And also St. Francis de Sales, Introduction to the Devout Life hmm. was wonderful for me to read. I love that book. Um, he's been very helpful to me. And then St. Catherine of Siena and her dialogues. Love that book. I could only read it a few pages at a time. And then I'd it just would send me into deep meditation Yeah. because just uh, I like the mystics, I guess. And so she was just, Oh, so those three really, I love have factored in. And then also I've discovered that the martyrs of Compagnon, if I'm saying it right, I don't speak Mm -hmm. French, sorry, French speakers, (laughs) have picked me so to speak. So I have a real good relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And I think they have developed in me an attraction to martyrdom Hmm. And I've, I meditate a lot on, on their martyrdom and what they have gone through. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they've been very good to me. And those are just a few, you know, of course I, yeah. I, I like, <laughs> I, I should have mentioned Servant of God, Mary Langs, mm-hmm. Servant of God, Thea Bowman, this, the African-Americans on the path to sainthood, sure, Servant yeah. of God, Julia Greeley, mm-hmm. Venerable Augustus Tolton, Venerable Henriette de Lille, and Venerable Pierre Tissant. Mm-hmm. And did I miss anybody? I don't think so. Yeah,
0: I think those were the ones I could. You, those were all ringing a bell for me. So.
1: So of course their life and stuff was very influential. Yeah. Um, how they walked the path of faith, also in dealing with the real um, racism in American society and in the church, and holding fast to the faith. And of course, my my parents, my grandparents, their belief in God, uh, despite lots of difficulties and family tragedies, a firm belief in God, I, I would say, has just really stayed with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just like an unwavering faith. It just like I couldn't imagine life without a belief in God. Yeah. It just is like breathing the air. God is there.
0: Yeah. And especially the more life the more life we live and the more tragedies that we see, both mm-hmm. societally and personally, I can't imagine living without the hope of our faith.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, one last thing I will say also as a child, because my grandmother was, my father's mother was like one of a bazillion children <laughs> being uh, exposed to death so young. Yeah. In the customs of the church, you know, the wake at the house to yeah. have the body laid out at the house and the all family from everywhere coming together and it being a moment of, praying and and mind you not these are not catholics but to see that prayer and and love for that person and the memory remembering that person and the burying and the whole ceremony of it i guess um and always knowing that god is there we're commending the soul off to god you know Mm -hmm. and um that's me and stay with me from a very young age and also I'm older now of course I fear death more than I did as a child <laughs> but understanding that that was just a part of the natural movement of life yeah. which I think has also been very helpful to me as well
0: yeah that's beautiful mm. in in terms of a final question also about holiness what practices and tactics have been effective for you as you seek after it in your own life
1: Oh, so we don't have time for it now, but God called me to be a third order Carmelite in, a, in another mystical way, which I wish I had time to tell you the story of that. But it was a very <laughs> unbelievable experience of how the Lord called me to Carmel. And so our charism as a Carmelite is to pray and seek the face of God. Okay. And so prayer is really important. We pray the liturgy of the hours, morning and evening prayer. Mm-hmm. We meditate a half hour a day, daily mass, Mary as our model, um, meeting in our community once a month. Those have been very important to me. And I was already somebody that prayed a lot. And when I say pray, I I don't necessarily mean rosary. Mm -hmm. I mean having God in mind and conversing with him and then being quiet and waiting for a response and Mm -hmm. just preparing myself for whatever response he may give. And I I don't know, it's just something that's developed over many years. And so I feel like I have a little cell inside of me (laughs) that I can just go into and wait for him. Hmm. and talk to him and I can be doing other things and be in that cell it's the weirdest thing I can't describe it other than it's just weird I don't know (laughs) it's just but all of us have it that's the thing and it's um, this interior way I I can't I don't know how I could do this I don't know why I could do this but it's like an interior going into yourself while you're still in the world It's, it's hard to describe Sure, but it's just this place that you can be and he's there or you're waiting for him to be there sometimes it's like for those of you who are parents it might be like you're you know you're going about your day but you know how you're always or have your ch- like if your child's in a the room they're always kind of present and they're in your mind and right there it's kind of like that mm-hmm. but it's more interior yeah. I, can't, I don't know how else to describe it yeah so that's been very helpful to me
0: yeah what a, what a gift and a grace that is especially as I mean we all get Bogged down with the busyness of life and just all the things we have to do, but the ability to go to that interior place and pray, I think, is uh, is a really great gift that you've got there so Mm, thanks well Gloria this has been an inspiring conversation for me I I hope it is so for audience as well I'm sure it will be but I just want to thank you for your time today and for your witness to the church the important voice that you play in our church today we really appreciate you being a part of the Notre Dame family and coming on the podcast today
1: Thank you. you you've you been so generous to me. Thank you very much. And I hope I didn't bore people to death.
0: <laughs> no, I, I, was, I was like, I've got to stop laughing so much. <laughs> people want to hear what you have to say, but it was very enjoyable for me. <laughs>
1: Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation as well.
0: All right, well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. We, of course, invite you to rate the podcast if you enjoyed it, to subscribe at a service of your choosing, and to sign up for our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. Until next time, you'll be in our prayers. Thanks for listening.